The, the point of chemical flavorings is not that they're toxic. It's not that they're going to give you cancer or Alzheimer's. The point is that they get you to eat food that you wouldn't normally eat. They make food taste more delicious than it deserves to be. And that is our number one problem. We eat too much food. We have a major problem with consuming too much calories. And flavorings encourage us to consume calories. Welcome, you're on air with Ella, where we share simple strategies and truths from people who are doing something better than we are. Whether it's wellness or fitness and fat loss to just living better and with more energy or changing your mindset to accomplish more in your own life and succeeding however you define it. This is where we share the best of what we're learning from the experts and we're learning more every day. Live better, start now. Hey everyone, you're on air with Ella, and today we are talking with Mark Schatzker, who's coming to us live from Toronto. Hey Mark, how are you? I'm great, how are you? I'm really, really well. What's the weather doing up in Toronto for you right now? It is one of those kind of mediocre days, not too hot, not too cold, uh, just not much of a weather story happening. Well, I love your city. Your city's incredible. Absolutely love being there. I've been up there on business a couple times, and it's just a gorgeous place to be, and the food's not so bad either. It, I, I like it here. I'm happy. Well, I am pleased to have you on today. We are here talking about your book called The Dorito Effect, and we will explain what that means. But first, Mark, can you tell us a little bit about you before we jump into what we're talking about today? Yeah, I'm a food writer. Uh, I'm a food and travel writer. or That's where this journey started. Um, I've always loved eating. I love the flavor of food. I obsess about food. I dream about it. And this book started with a very simple curiosity, which was, why does food taste the way it tastes? And it sort of snowballed and got very big. Well, uh, one of my dearest friends who's an MD, she sent me a write-up on your book and said, have you read this? It looks like something you'd be into. And I was like, it has a Dorito on the cover? No. <laughs> And I'm being facetious because I figured out that you probably weren't writing a book all about the virtues of Doritos, but your book is called The Dorito Effect. And after I attained a copy, I poured through it in one sitting. It is fascinating. It's it, 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 There's really a lot to this subject. I was surprised as I researched it. I felt almost privileged that that we hadn't really had this conversation yet. So I feel lucky to be, you know, to, to be the messenger, so to speak. Well, let's give people an idea of what this is about, because I don't do too many shows that are just book reports, Mark. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't just, because the audience hasn't read your book. Some of them, of course, have. And, you know, I'm sure your mother's listening, right? Absolutely. <laughs> and your book has done very well, but a lot of people out there haven't read it. First, let's explain what on earth you mean by the Dorito effect. And then we'll talk about the problem statement in general. Well, the Dorito effect refers to the story of the Dorito, which is really the story of flavor, which tells us so much about our food. So I will very simply tell you that story. Everyone knows what Doritos are, but Doritos almost never happened. Um, it started in the early 60s when a Madison Avenue ad man named Arch West was hired by Frito-Lay to be the vice president of sales and marketing. He was in charge of Fritos which many of us know. So in the early 60s, he took his family on a trip to Southern California. He stayed at the home of a guy named Lawrence Frank, who invented Laurie's season salt. And very interestingly, he actually met Ray Kroc on that trip, the guy who started McDonald's. Amazingly, th these two seminal figures in the history of junk food really had nothing to do with each other other than just meeting on the street. But after that, Arch West was driving to San Diego with his family 
when he saw a little Mexican shack by the side of the road, and for the first time in his life, he tasted tortilla chips. And the guy in charge of Fritos tasted a tortilla chip, and he thought, okay, we got something here. He thought this was going to be the next big thing for Frito-Lay. So he took the idea back to Dallas. He pitched it to his fellow executives, and they said, no. The way they saw it, uh, tortilla chips were too similar to Fritos. Why would they bother doing something like that? Arch West knew better. He funneled discretionary funds to an off-site facility, and in secret, he developed his tortilla chip concept. He even gave them a name, which meant little pieces of gold in a kind of bastardized Spanish, and he re-pitched it, Doritos. And he had samples, and his fellow executives said, you got the green light, let's make Doritos happen. And you're thinking right now, okay, this is the birth of the Wonder Snack, the snack that everybody knows, the multi-billion dollar earner for Frito-Lay. And that's not true. In fact, Doritos almost died on the vine because the very first Dorito that was brought to market was just like the tortilla chip that Arch West tasted at that little Mexican shack, which is to say it was just a salted tortilla chip. And no one really got it. In the Southwest, where there was a Hispanic cultural influence, people knew you could dip a tortilla chip in guacamole or in salsa or bean dip. They liked them just fine. But everyone else all over the country, the complaint was, this snack sounds Mexican. It doesn't taste Mexican. So Arch West had to face his executives again, the guys he'd lied to, and they said, what are we going to do about Doritos? And this is when he uttered the statement that changed everything. It changed not only Doritos, but it changed our food environment. He said, let's make them taste like taco. Sounds brilliant, doesn't it? But actually, it got laughs. One of his fellow executives said, you don't know the difference between a thing and a flavor. And it was a really good comment because up until that point, all things had their own flavor. Bananas tasted like bananas, oranges tasted like oranges, and tacos tasted like taco. If you wanted to taste one of those things, you had to go out and eat one of those things. If you wanted to taste banana, you ate a banana. If you wanted to taste a taco, you ate a taco. But what Arch West knew was that the technology had changed and that we now had chemical flavorings that could make a scientist or a food industry executive make a food taste like whatever they wanted. Now you could make a tortilla chip taste like a taco. It didn't taste exactly the same, but it had the same savory depth, the same tang. It, it pushed some of the same sensory buttons and it made that tortilla chip taste better. And that's what made the Dorito the Dorito. That's why it became a, a snack that is irresistible. A tortilla chip that no one was interested in eating suddenly became a tortilla chip that no one could stop eating. And it was all because of flavor chemicals. And that tells us so much about what's happened to our food industry and the food that we all eat and that so many of us struggle to stop eating. So it seems to me that the Dorito represents everything that happened in the food industry starting in, what, the 60s? The 50s? Absolutely. No, no, that is exactly correct. The, everything is turning into a Dorito for two reasons. On the one hand, all our food is getting blander. It's getting slightly more caloric, and it's getting blander. And we're dumping flavor, flavor chemicals, into everything. So... It's not, the message of my book isn't, oh, you got to stop eating Doritos. The message of my book is everything is in its own bizarre way turning into Doritos. We put flavor chemicals in everything from soy milk to yogurt to raw chicken. 
this is having a huge impact on how we eat, on why we eat, on what we find delicious and for what reason. And it's a problem. So you say the Dorito effect, very simply, is what happens when food gets blander and flavor technology gets better. And I want to break that down into those two pieces. So when you say flavor technology gets better, am I understanding you correctly that several decades ago, actually it's increasing now, but when our grandparents were eating, this flavor technology didn't really exist? Exactly. If you look at the flavor industry before the 1960s, it was a tiny industry. They, they had just the barest sense of what they were doing. There was an artificial vanilla. There were some very simple and very unconvincing fruit flavors. And the problem is we had a rudimentary grasp of plant chemistry, which is to say we, we didn't know where flavor came from. Um, a food scientist could look at an orange or a steaming cup of coffee and just kind of wonder what it is that made these foods taste the way they do. We knew about all the big things in there, the carbohydrates, the vitamins, those things, but we didn't know anything about flavor. In the mid-50s, a new device was commercialized called the gas chromatograph. And this device made it possible to analyze anything down to the tiniest micrograms. And this let scientists unlock the mysteries of flavor. All of a sudden, you could figure out what chemicals inside an orange gave an orange its, its oranginess. You could find out what chemicals inside a grape made a grape taste like a grape, and so forth. And it wasn't long. It was a very quick step after we figured out the chemicals in a grape or in mint or in an orange, the very quick step to, to then go, well, hey, why don't we make these ourselves? And that's exactly what we did. So all of a sudden, if you wanted to make something taste like grape, you didn't need grapes. If you wanted to make gum taste like mint, you didn't need mint. You just needed to knock off the chemicals. And that is what the flavor industry is. It is a chemical industry that produces the chemicals that give food its signature flavor. So you spent some time in these labs. Can you paint a picture for us as to what the food industry looks like now from this perspective? Yes. Uh, basically, a food company will come to a flavor company with a brief, which is to say they might want to market a new drink or a yogurt or an ice cream. They will have a segment in mind. That if they might want it to taste uh, energetic and vibrant. And a flavorist will put together a combination of chemicals that that evokes that response that makes someone eat eat it and they'll go wow that you know that tastes amazing very simply what's really interesting if they're coming up let's say with a blueberry flavoring there's no blueberries that go in that blueberry flavoring they just find the chemical hits that evoke that experience so so often when we eat foods that we think of as natural blueberry yogurt is a great example we think it tastes like blueberries because there's blueberries in it. Now, they very often will put a few blueberries in it so that visually you're like, oh, I, I see a blueberry there. But what's making it taste like blueberry are those flavor chemicals. So this is what... So let me see if I understand this correctly. We have food manufacturers manufacturing food, but what I didn't understand until I read the Dorito effect is we have flavor companies that are, that's its own thing. It's its own industry. And so said food manufacturer hires or outsources flavor and buys flavor from the third party. Am I, am I summarizing this correctly? No, no, you got it exactly correct. The, the food companies are really sort of producing bland widgets 
And it's the flavor companies that bring them to life, that make them taste like something. And this is, I mean, we're talking like billions of dollars exchanged at the end of this whole value stream, Billions right? of dollars. And flavorings are cheap. I mean, they, they are measured in pennies, sometimes fractions of pennies per serving. So this is not, you know, you, you can flavor a whole skid of yogurt for a few dollars. I mean, it is really cheap. And the reason this industry is booming is because what I'm understanding is we are flavoring everything to taste like what we want it to taste like. Absolutely. Yeah. It, um, Americans consume about 600 million pounds of flavoring a year. These are chemicals that are measured in parts per million, sometimes per billion. So think about how much that is. We're, like I said, we put it in everything. It's not just potato chips. It's not just soda. It's in everything. It's in frozen pizza. It's in pasta sauce. It's in soy milk. It's hard. Go through the supermarket. Read the ingredient label. It's hard to find products that don't have flavoring in there. Well, as I'm reading the book, I'm, I'm thinking, thank goodness I have moved my household so much farther away from packaged food and processed food. And, you know, I'm, I'm feeling very noble and, and really proud of myself. And I go into the kitchen. Thanks a lot for this, Mark, by the way. I go into my kitchen and I pull out my uh, Italian mineral soda or whatever my sparkling water is. And I turn it around and it's got water and artificial flavors in it. Yeah, no, I, it might even say natural flavors, but natural flavors aren't really natural flavors, right? There's no difference. If you see the word natural flavors, in your head, you should replace that with artificial flavors because they are, chemically speaking, the same thing. Yeah, and then you get your, your almond milk out, and your almond milk has flavors, I'm assuming, to make it taste more almondy. I don't even know, Mark. <laughs> yeah, and they tend to put a lot of sugar in, too. It's always this combination of they, they just make it taste better, but in a, in a fake and, I would say, deceptive way because you're not eating what you think you're eating. And the thing is, they can't, you know, they're pretty good at knocking off nature. They'll never really be able to capture that magic. You, you cannot create an orange flavoring that's as good as a fresh, freshly squeezed orange juice, for example. But the point is, it's good enough. You can put orange flavoring in really sugary soda water, and suddenly you've got an orange soft drink that, that kids love. It pushes those buttons, they drink it, and they go, wow, that tasted great. So basically, if you're looking at a shelf filled with sodas, you're just looking at all of them are filled with carbonated sugar water and then whatever flavoring chemical recipe. It's exactly, that's with. exactly correct. So that, that's another way I used to, another example I used to illustrate the power of flavorings. If you took the flavorings out of soft drinks, you would be left with sugar, sugary, carbonated sugar water. Who would drink that? I, I, I mean, who would want to have that with their lunch? But when you put these flavorings in, to make it taste fruity and dynamic and vibrant, all of a sudden, this carbonated sugar water becomes delicious. And this is the point. The point of chemical flavorings is not that they're toxic. It's not that they're going to give you cancer or Alzheimer's. The point is that they get you to eat food that you wouldn't normally eat. They make food taste more delicious than it deserves to be. And that is our number one problem as a culture, we eat too much food. We have a major problem with consuming too much calories. And flavorings encourage us to consume calories. 
that was the home run for me as I was reading this book because I thought it was going to be a book about food addiction and how and, and frankly I was like I already know this story like the food manufacturers make our food and they add sugar fat um, MSG you know whatever flavorings hit all the receptors that feel so good in that moment and we can't stop and you go way beyond that story which happens to be true and important but you go way beyond it and you're point is one of the points that you make is nothing tastes like what it actually is anymore and everything tastes like what we want it to taste like exactly and this was the, this is another take home lesson from the dorito which is that for tens of thousands of years for all of human existence flavor was up to mother nature with the invention of the gas chromatograph flavor was now up to the folks literally who worked in marketing Okay, so you say in 1965, there were less than 700 flavor chemicals. Today, there are more than 2,200 <laughs> that, yes. that are known. So why is this a problem? Like, why, are, why is this conversation even important, Mark? Because food is a problem, because our health is a problem, because we, for decades now, we've been having a conversation about what's gone wrong with food, and it's been nutrient-oriented, which is to say we've been beating up on the nutrients in food. We've attacked fat. We've attacked carbohydrates. We've attacked sugar. I'm not saying this argument is entirely wrong, but that argument, that, that approach looks at what food does once it gets into your stomach. What does that sugar, what does that high fructose corn syrup do to your liver? How is it processed by your liver? What does that fat do? What does the sugar do to your pancreas? Those are valid questions, but they miss a really big part of the puzzle, which is why is that food getting into your stomach in the first place? And what we've missed is that eating is a behavior. Food just doesn't show up magically in your stomach. We make decisions to eat. We are moved to eat. We are motivated to eat. We want to eat, basically. It's a desire. And flavor is the language of desire when it comes to food. We've had this food obsession going for like half a century, and we've never talked about the way food tastes, about the way we experience food. And that's flavor. The thing that I found the most fascinating but also disturbing is the question, why does food have flavor in the first place? Because once you answer that question, the, the ramifications just kind of build up and then you really go, oh my gosh, this, this, this is, you know, frightening. Why does food have flavor in the first place? Where, what's the lesson there? The, okay, so we mainly, we sense food when we eat, we sense food with our mouth and our nose. We tend to think all the flavorings happening in our mouth, but that's kind of a trick our brain plays. The truth is your nose is incredibly important. Aroma chemicals waft up through the back of your throat into your nose and you perceive them. It's those flavor chemicals that make an orange taste like an orange or a roast chicken taste like a roast chicken. The interesting question is, why do we have this chemical sensing ability? What purpose is it there for? When you look at animals, the reason animals sense flavor is because they use flavor to find the nutrients that they need. For example, if you make sheep deficient in vitamin E or phosphorus, these are two essential nutrients both for sheep and for humans. If you make that sheep deficient, let's say in phosphorus, that sheep will begin to crave the flavor of food that has phosphorus in it. Now, a sheep does not read nutrition magazines, does not watch daytime TV, <laughs> has no clue what phosphorus is. That sheep All, is not counting its macros. <laughs> it's not, absolutely. It's not on a high-protein diet. It's not paleo. <laughs> All that sheep knows is 
this tastes good to me right now. But what is so fascinating is that what a sheep desires and what a sheep needs are the same thing. This is called nutritional wisdom. It's basically the idea that your palate is guiding your nutrition. We don't ask this question, is something similar happening with humans? But if you look at the evidence, it's compelling. For, for example, when British sailors were dying of scurvy in the 1700s, they craved fruit and vegetables. Their bodies knew what they wanted, they, what they needed. This is a great example of nutritional wisdom in humans, of people literally craving what they wanted. And what they wanted, we can't taste the vitamin C. It's relatively inert. Vitamin C tastes a little bit sour. What we taste are the flavors that indicate vitamin C. So when we eat that fruit or that vegetables, our body goes, yes, that's what you need. Eat that. So what we've done with synthetic flavorings is we've created the appearance of nutrition without the actual nutrition. So if you take that orange-flavored drink I talked about, it tastes like an orange, but it doesn't have the same nutrition as an orange. It doesn't have the fiber. It doesn't have the vitamin C. It doesn't have the antioxidants. But it's fooling us. It's just It doesn't deliver that complex hit of micronutrients. It delivers calories. It's sending a false signal to our brains about what's really in this food. So we might fill our faces then with a bunch of food that's calorie dense, but not nutrient dense, and it's not satiating. So it's so much harder to stop or you, even just to feel good after you've done it. Exactly. No, that's exactly it. As you said, what we do is we deliver a big, huge, whopping load of calories. We don't deliver the nutrients and we don't really satisfy ourselves. Um, one of the things I found I, and I continue to find interesting is how junk food you can eat so much of it in such a short period of time, and it's not satisfying. On the rare occasions that I eat at McDonald's, I'm always amazed that an hour afterwards, I'm hungry. And I think that's unbelievable. I, I consumed a staggering quantity of calories. How could I possibly be hungry? But then you have, um, let's say you have a, a, a salad and a tuna sandwich for lunch, far fewer calories, and that'll keep me going for hours. There are central questions about satiety and about how we satisfy ourselves that we have only the barest understanding of. Well, let's share the story about the rats and specifically the rats that got to eat whatever they wanted, so to speak. I don't know if they knew that they wanted it. <laughs> well, yeah, no, this is, this is a, a fascinating but also kind of a frightening story. This was um, an experiment, a food addiction experiment that was done at Scripps University where they put rats on an all-you-can-eat diet of high-calorie bacon, cake icing, peanut butter. They actually, you know, interestingly, rats didn't actually like the peanut butter that much, and the peanut butter was probably the healthiest thing in there. But what they found, oh, and by the way, the peanut butter was also one of the very few things that was not flavored. That's another interesting part. All these things had flavorings in them. Initially, the rats were gorging, the rats were happy, but they had a means of testing the rats' happiness. They had these wires uh, going into their brains. And over time, as the rats began to eat more and more compulsively, their level of happiness went down and down. Initially, these foods gratified them and made them happy. With time, the rats were eating just so they could get back to baseline. They were eating just so they could stop feeling lousy. What is so interesting about this is that it resonates with the experience of food addicts, with all addicts, which is to say addictive substances, you know, the first time maybe you get drunk or you shoot heroin, it's fun. It feels great. When you, get in, when you fall into the pit of addiction, it's not about being fun anymore. It's about just taking it to not feel horrible. 
Why this is important is because it shows us that food addiction has many traits in common with other diseases of addiction, which is to say it's a disease of wanting. It's not, a, it's not about being satisfied. It's about craving. So, you know, many of us look at food addicts and we think, well, what's the matter with you? Just get some self-control. Stop eating. We also think, boy, it must be fun to sit around all day, you know, eating coconut cream pie and drinking soda and stuffing your face with chips. It's not. The truth is these people are in the grip of extremely powerful desires that they can't satisfy. It's a really miserable state. And I think everybody on some level, except for the happy, you know, 2%, I think everybody can relate to this at some moment in time or some particular trigger food that they have. Absolutely. And what is so interesting to me is that it boils down to want. We keep talking about the nutritional qualities of food. Is it high carb? Is it high calorie? That's all valid. But what gets us to eat food is our desire for it. And why this is scary is because Flavor chemicals are essentially chemical desire. Just like the Dorito, I can make you want that Dorito by putting a chemical on it. Nutritionally, it hasn't changed. It's still the same old tortilla chip that without the flavorings kind of tastes bland. We need to realize how we incentivize ourselves to eat stuff when we, when we tinker not only with the food, but really with our brains. Well, and when I picture people in white lab coats sitting around trying to figure out which chemicals to add to the food to make it more XYZ so that I will want it more. Like two things happen. One is I feel stupid like a sheep. And two is it pisses me off. (laughs) Yeah, no, and I think it should. I mean, maybe one of the most startling things about the flavor industry is that they also add flavorings to cigarettes. They hire the same scientists cigarettes to put the very same flavorings in cigarettes that they put in food because they're trying to get something addictive to taste better so that you'll be more likely to use it. I uncovered memos from the early 70s in which tobacco executives say that flavored cigarettes appeal more to kids. Well, what about all these other flavored things we're we're throwing at our kids? It's the same model. We are literally wired to like this stuff. I remember when I was visiting one of these flavor companies, I had an interesting, it was really interesting. The thing that's so interesting is these people are so smart. They are so well-educated. They're lovely people. I enjoyed spending time with them because they're, you know, they're bright. They, they sure. know tons about chemistry and biology, but they were talking, they were making a synthetic strawberry flavoring. And they said, these are the chemicals that make it taste good. And I said, but aren't you worried that by putting these chemicals in food, you make people eat too much of it? And they said, Oh, that's a matter of personal choice. They really think that. And I thought, but that's so interesting because they don't know what you're putting in there. And the truth is, as we all know, when it comes to food cravings, this isn't a rational choice like you might make between, oh, do I want to buy life insurance from this company or this company? Do I want to paint my room white or blue? These are desires that have a very powerful grip on us. Desires that we often have a great deal of trouble resisting. These come from the primitive parts of our brain. I really think it's short-sighted to say this is simply a matter of personal choice. I, I couldn't agree more. And one of the things that's just true is that so many of us 
in the Western culture believe that if if it's on a shelf in a grocery store, you know, it had to pass through some kind of evaluation to make sure it's okay and it's safe and it's fine and it's it's food and it's nutritious. And I don't think we think all of this. I don't think we run through this, this um, dialogue in our heads. It's just, oh, come on, Ella, don't be so fringe. Like, oh, if it's on the shelf, it's not going to kill me. And the truth is, half of the stuff in the grocery store, if you took out the artificial flavorings in this example, it would almost be the same product (laughs) like you'd have you'd have a couple of aisles of sugar water if you took out the flavoring so those aisles would all be identical they'd be like fizzy sugar water and then you'd have like packaged crackers that had (laughs) that were all dust until you add the herbs or the or the nacho yeah exactly (laughs) like i feel like the grocery stores are full are full of like six staple things that are all flavored completely differently so that they taste different (laughs) yeah that's exactly it that, that is precisely it. It's the Dorito. It's just a bland substrate with thrilling flavor chemicals on it. That is the model. And it's, it works. It really works. This food sells. People gobble it up. Well, and you think about just like yogurt. So the reason I'm going on this diatribe is because we think it's healthy. But the truth is it's all marketing. So you go into the store and you see these, quote, yogurt things that are in a squeezy tube and they have a picture of a fruit or some kind of cartoon character or maybe both. And it's colored the color of a blueberry and it's got a chemical in it to make it taste like a blueberry. But really it's sugar in a tube that's going to appeal to your kid. And you think it's healthy because it's designed for children. Well, listen, they have statements on there saying, you know, designed to provide the blended nutrients to help, you know, little bodies grow. They have language like that. And I I honestly think I'm a parent. I think parents are fooled by these things. I mean, I know about this stuff. I, I research it. But most people most people don't visit flavor companies. Most people don't know what a natural flavor is. They, they think it came from a fruit or something. But like you say, you look at those squeeze tubes, there's no fruit. So a parent opens it, they smell it, they taste it, they go, yeah, there's blueberry in there. There is no blueberry in there. It is flavoring plus sugar. So we talk about yogurt as being healthy. Well, there's a huge difference between an unsweetened, unflavored Bulgarian yogurt and a yogurt tube. I mean, you can almost not compare them, but we refer to them both as, quote, yogurt. I get a little riled up when we start talking about this (laughs) because there is chatter out there about we don't know what goes in our food, what's happening to our food supply, but you've unearthed something that frankly seemed innocuous even to me. And your book made me realize that even the things that I take for granted as being nice and clean and healthy options are frankenfoods that someone's designed to make me think that it's good for me and it's not. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's true. You know, the big problem is calories. Uh, Obesity is the number two cause of preventable death behind smoking. It's the number one cause of preventable morbidity, which is to say disease and suffering. It's a really, really big problem. And what we need to do is understand eating as a behavior and then look at the things that influence that behavior and, and flavor's a big one. Listen, here's the thing we haven't even talked about. If you want to talk about flavor, the whole foods, the stuff we should be eating, the, the tomatoes, the strawberries, the cucumber, that's all getting blander. So you go into a modern supermarket, I mean, what are, you, what are people going to want to eat? The Dorito that tastes thrilling and delicious or the tomato that tastes like cardboard? When you look at food through the lens of what do we actually want to eat, it really starts to make sense. 
Okay, you've said a couple things that are important, and I want to go back to first to the blandness, because that was the second half of your hypothesis upon which the book is founded, and that is that not only is flavor technology getting better and better and better, but it is entirely, that whole thing is being sped up or buttressed by the fact that food, the whole foods that we eat are getting blander. Now tell us why. Why is the food that I'm eating different than the food that my grandmother had access to? Very simply, product. Um, we have done a remarkable job of getting the same patch of land to produce more and more food. If you look at tomatoes, an acre of tomato produces about seven times as many tomatoes now. If it produced a hundred or let's say a thousand pounds uh, 80 years ago, it produces 7,000 pounds now. That is the story with everything. Food yields have gone way up. Now, there are some good aspects to this. The price of food has come down. Food is more accessible. The problem is that we've paid for all this quantity with quality. We experience this so often when we buy produce. It just And, and we know it. Everyone's, everyone says, oh, if I could just buy a good tomato. We know that when you eat a good tomato, it can almost make you cry. But we also know you're lucky if that happens once a year. Look at what we do with bland food. By the way, chicken is another excellent example chickens, thanks to not genetic modification, but just intensive breeding, chickens grow about three times faster than they used to. In the 1940s, if you went and bought, uh, let's say, a four-pound chicken at the grocery store, that would have been about 15, maybe 16, maybe 17 weeks old. Today, it is six weeks old. So we have a lot of chicken out there. It is. It used to be expensive. It used to be rare. It is the cheapest, most popular meat now. The problem is that chicken has also lost its flavor. When you look at old cookbooks, it's, I love old cookbooks, but the interesting thing is when you look through them, you must think, wow, people really had boring taste back then because they just put salt and pepper on everything. So if you look at a, an old recipe for fried chicken, it's just you dredge it in flour and salt and pepper and you shallow fry it. That recipe would be an epic fail now because you bite into it and you go, oh my God, this is so bland. The reason it worked is because the chicken back then had flavor. And I've made that recipe with heirloom chicken and it will blow your mind. It's the best chicken you have ever had. It's also, incidentally, a much more nutrient-dense chicken. But I'll get to that later. That's the story of all our food. So what do you do to chicken now to make it taste better? You dump barbecue sauce on it. 50% of the chicken we eat is further processed, which is to say we convert it into nuggets or strips or tenders. We add flavorings. Look for artificial or natural flavors in your chicken nuggets, and you'll find it. We do that because chicken has followed the same model as the Dorito. It's bland. You dress it up in synthetic flavorings. People think it's delicious, and they eat it, but it's not the same. Real food just isn't delicious anymore. So, Mark, I have to interject here and have you tell people a little bit more about the chicken that we're buying in a store, like plain chicken breast that we're buying in a store. It's not plain chicken breast. No, it's flavored. Look at the ingredients on a, on a raw chicken, and you will very often find that there's, quote, natural flavorings in there. And the reason it's there is because the chicken industry knows their chicken sucks. They know it has no flavor they know they have to give it a little boost. Otherwise, people wouldn't be all that interested in eating it. I read also that they add coloring. And by the way, when you say natural flavors, I mean, it literally just says natural flavors, right? Yeah, it, it just, just says, says natural that. flavors. Yeah, exactly. 
or it'll say it'll say may contain up to ten percent broth, and the ingredients are salt, uh, you know, natural flavor, something like that. Okay, and then the coloring. Sometimes they add coloring so that it looks like it was a happy chicken that wandered around in a pasture, right? Yeah, what they'll do is they'll feed it a dye or a plant extract that'll make that'll put literally, uh, a, yeah, a, a yellow dye in their skin so that people think like, oh, these chickens were you know cavorting around the pasture eating grasshoppers and so forth when they you know no such thing happened. So what is the answer, Mark? So we have this world now where almost everything, and I don't think this is an overstatement. You tell me if you think I'm being grandiose here. Almost everything in our supermarket is fake <laughs> in, to some degree or another. Like, in other words, we are tinkering with at least everything inside the perimeter. But what I'm hearing you say is even on the perimeter, in our dairy and in our meats, we're tinkering with that too. Yeah, uh, no, we are. Absolutely. Um, it's, it, you know, and it can look pretty grim. Um, it can be pretty scary. And, and you can have that kind of moment. You go, oh, my God, what, you know, what can I eat? Um, very simply, if there is a relationship between what I call real flavor, which is to say the way something really tastes, not when it's been tinkered with, and nutrition, what we need to do is seek out foods that are innately delicious, foods that do not need to be tinkered with to be delicious. So very simply, prize wonderful ingredients. Seek out tomatoes that taste like tomatoes and, and you know, maybe pay a little bit more for those. Pay a little bit more. Go to the farmer's market and find a chicken that was raised on a proper farm, a chicken that actually tastes like a chicken. I love good grass-fed beef. There is some not-so-good grass-fed beef out there, but when grass-fed beef is good, it is unbelievable. It is richer in nutrients. It's also just amazing. This is food that truly does satisfy you. Your food is delicious, but it satisfies you on kind of a deeper level. You're not hungry an hour after you eat. You're not, you're not, sitting there struggling with a food coma because your food makes you feel lousy. It, it's like eating sushi. You get up, you feel light on your feet, and you feel energized. And that's how food is supposed to make you feel. So very simply, avoid the fake flavors, but search for real deliciousness. I think that that's a key that you mentioned that so many other people uh, omit, which is we like to eat things that we enjoy, and life is too short not to. So a lot of us in the nutrition and wellness space have bro like taken all the romance and all the enjoyment out of food and we eat, oh, I need this much protein. Oh, I need to have this much and no more carbs. And that is no way to experience food. It doesn't work. The, the reason diets fail is because there's no pleasure in them. Eating is our number one instinct. It's even more important than reproduction. Food has to be delicious. You have to find joy in your food. The two countries that interest me the most are Italy and Japan because they have the reputations as having the most wonderful food, as, as treating food the most seriously. They're, they're obsessed with it. I mean, it becomes ridiculous, the things the Japanese and Italians will do for food. But what is so interesting to me is that they are much, much trimmer than us. If deliciousness was the real killer, then the Italians and the Japanese would be bigger than everybody. And they're not because they have a relationship with real food. They prize delicious fruit, delicious vegetables. They're willing to pay more for it. And when you visit these countries, you're like, oh my God, the food is amazing. I want to expand on what you said about calories, and I'm going to tie this all together. So just bear with me here for a moment. The calories are important in the story that you're telling because we are consuming empty foods that are empty of nutrients and very high in calories. 
Yes. Now, in my world and my listeners, they know I do not believe in a world where we actually focus on counting calories. And frankly, Mark, I don't think that's what you're saying. I think what you're saying is get your energy, get your calories from nutrient-dense foods instead of the empty copycats. Absolutely, yes. What I would say is, is get food that is telling the true story, whose flavor tells the true story of what's in it. The truth is our biggest requirement, we can talk about vitamins and minerals, our biggest requirement is for calories. That is the the thing we need most of all. So of course calories are going to pleasure us on some level and we shouldn't be afraid of that. We shouldn't be afraid of occasional indulgence. What you need is food that's being honest with you. Well, let me mention really briefly here how that parlays in artificial sweeteners, because you touch on an important point here. And in the book, you elaborate on this. And this is starting to become quite popular in the interwebs. The fact that artificial sweeteners activate certain areas, certain receptors that tell your body that you're about to get something sweet and then it doesn't. Like, can you explain better than I am right now yeah, what absolutely. the problem with artificial sweeteners is? Well, I tell people to avoid artificial sweeteners because it's another chemical lie. You know, we think, we think we're so smart. Oh, we found this chemical that, you know, says sweetness to our tongue, but there's no calories, you know, isn't life grand? Well, it's not because when you look at the epidemiology of artificial sweeteners, the people that consume a lot of them are at a very similar risk for obesity and diabetes and metabolic disease as the people who don't, who, who just consume a lot of sugar. So if we think that artificial sweeteners are this great way to cut out sugar, they're cl it's clearly not working. It's clearly not a very effective remedy. But what's even worse is that the signals that artificial sweeteners send don't just end at the tongue. We have sweet receptors in our digestive tract, and they did a, a study in England where they, because they put artificial sweeteners in pig feed, and uh, in piglet feed, and somebody found Oh my gosh, isn't this interesting? When we put the artificial sweeteners in piglet feed, not only do they like the feed, but they gain more weight. And what they found is the artificial sweeteners are actually making the pig's digestive tract even more efficient because it pings these sweet receptors. The digestive tract goes, oh, we got some sugar coming. And they start to metabolize that food more intently and they wring more calories out of it. So it's actually having the reverse effect of what's intended in humans, which is to say, it's, it's fooling our bodies. It's not doing what we want it to do. Uh, some of the scientists that study this, they, call, they talk about metabolic derangements, which is to say sweet, artificial sweeteners fool your body and confuse your body as to the meaning of sweetness. You eat ice cream and your body says, oh, sweetness, calories. But then you drink uh, a diet soft drink and your body goes, wait a sec, I got sweetness but no calories. What's going on? And this this is crossing wires. It's, it's, it's not good for us. And the irony is people consume artificial sweeteners because they think they are better. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and they're actually detrimental. That's right. So they're exactly. not helping you meet your goals. Okay, so thank you for letting me go down that rabbit hole because I did want to flush that out because it affects so many of us. Now, I want to break down the resolution just a little bit further before I let you go because what what you're saying is, at the end of the day, if I'm understanding you correctly, is that real flavors are our salvation, right? That is the answer to this problem. Yes. 
But exactly. the busy parent or the busy career person or the busy student hears that and they're like, well, I don't have time to live like an Italian chef. So make this real for me. What advice do you have for those of us who are overwhelmed by the negative news here and really don't know how to feed ourselves well? What's, what's the, What's your response to the person that says, I'm too busy and it's too expensive? Listen, I'm, you know, I work, I got three kids, so does my wife. I think there is time. It doesn't take three hours to prepare a, a, what I would call a, a real dinner. You can do it in 20 minutes or half an hour. I think more of us do have the time. It just, we just have to want to do it. But what I would say is maybe a simple way for people to start is to figure out maybe a food for them that's a problem. Let's say it's soft drinks. And come up with a, a real solution. So if you love to start a meal with like a, a can of iced tea or a soda, give yourself something real that hits the same buttons. Every, I would say every time you have that craving for a soft drink, eat a piece of fruit and drink a glass of water. It'll feel weird the first time, but see how it feels the fifth time. Do it for 10 days and then have a sip of that soda and all you will taste are chemicals and sugar. Y your palate will change and you'll realize what that stuff really is. Your palate really does change, and it doesn't take that long, relatively speaking. No, it, it, I mean, it won't happen overnight, but y you can be amazed. I, I, I totally agree with you. I, I, you know, I used to be, I was never a serious uh, soda drinker, but I never drink it now, not because I don't need to lose weight, and I, I'm not fighting a war on it or something. I just don't like it. It does not taste very good. It's, it's, I find it incredibly sweet. I'm blown away. By how sweet it is. Almost everyone I know at some point in their life consumed soda on a regular basis. And I certainly did. And I couldn't um, envision a world in which that wouldn't taste good. I could envision a world where I didn't drink it, but I never realized or appreciated the fact that I actually wouldn't like it. So once you give it up, you, you don't want to go back after a certain amount of time because it just tastes completely different. It just, it tastes kind of gross. Yeah, exactly. You think when you're in it, I mean, it's addictive, and I don't even mean addictive with a capital A. I just mean it's your habit, and you can't imagine that never being your habit. Yeah, it's it's it requires, I guess, to some degree, exposure, education. But um, but when you get on that journey, um, it's it's an exciting one because the truth is, food tastes better. So here are my takeaways, Mark, from your book and from this conversation with you. And and this is, I want to just make this real for the people that I described to you. First of all, it's not more expensive in aggregate when you are buying a bunch of less crap, if I may, and you're focusing your dollars on food that is good, tastes good, and you you know where it's sourced from. So that is very simple. That's a farmer's market. Some grocery stores are now saying these things over here were locally sourced. Um, you know, if you seek it, you can find it, except in some areas of, um, in some areas of the country and other countries, it is harder. I, I completely understand that. And I have a lot of empathy for people who have a hard time getting to things like farmer's markets or co-ops or something of that nature. But is it a little more time and effort? I'm sure relative to something, but now going to the farmer's market once a week is just a part of what I do and it doesn't feel like some kind of big exercise. So I just want to make this real for people and share that with them. It's also not more expensive when you cut, I mean, it's shocking when you cut out prepackaged foods and sodas and, and all of these things and those don't become the lion's share of your spend weekly. There's more money for real food. It just happens. Yeah, you're totally right. There, there's this weird myth that we, we tell ourselves that processed food is cheap. I don't think it's cheap. I mean, you can go and find something, 
you know, at Walmart or something on sale and you go, oh yeah, those crackers are really cheap. But I have a family, I do the shopping. Processed food is expensive. It's convenient, but it is not cheap. If I compare what it would cost to feed my family at McDonald's, it would be something like 30 or $35. I got three kids. I can put an amazing meal on the table for $35. Excellent meal. Like farmer's market, heirloom pork, the whole nine yards. It'll be amazing. Well, and that's my final takeaway. And I'm no chef. Everyone knows this. Uh, but what I learned was I can prepare food very, very simply. So I don't consider myself, I don't particularly derive a lot of joy from cooking. I wish I did, but I certainly can prepare a meal. So I don't think of myself as the chef or the cook in the family, but I can prepare a warm meal made with really, with real food. And it's very, very simple. There's an entire universe out there of meals that can be prepared with five ingredients or less. So don't talk to me about how complicated it is, guys, because if I can make it happen, you can make it happen. Listen, Italians say uh, a good uh, a, a good recipe should have three ingredients or less. They are all about simplicity. You just need, for that those recipes to work, you just need to have good ingredients. Well, Mark, this has been fascinating, and I'm going to plug your book, okay? Because <laughs> I, I just thought it was so readable for lack of a more intelligent way to say that. So for those of you who have read Freakonomics, it's as readable as Freakonomics on a subject that you would think would be dry. And Mark just writes about it just brilliantly. It was captivating, Mark. And I really, really enjoyed it. And I enjoyed that you went a little deeper than I was expecting and uncovered a lot of different angles that I had never considered before. So, so well done you. Thank you so much. Now, tell us before I let you go, what's one habit you would like us to try for one week? Don't look at the nutrition facts, read the ingredients, look for artificial flavors or natural flavors. Get some acquaintance with how flavor altered so much of the food that we eat actually is. I got a jump start on that one and I'm not happy about it. Okay, (laughs) what is one resource that you love that you'd like to recommend to us? I guess an extension of that is I constantly, the great thing is a lot of this stuff is available online. So it's amazing how much research you can do about all sorts of foods just by looking it up. And, and you almost don't need, even need to go shopping to, to educate yourself. That, that to me is the, is the one thing I look for is, is synthetic flavorings. That, that to me is the marker of junk food. When I see that there, I say to myself, yeah, maybe this isn't something I want to eat. What was the actual resource you're recommending? Is it the internet? The internet. You may have heard of it. All right. I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes. Mark, thank you so much for your time. Where does everybody find you when they want more Mark Schatzker? MarkSchatzker.com. If you just Google the Dorito effect, uh, you will find me. And if anyone wants to ask me a question, I always love to. If someone wants to send me an email, I am open. I love to try and help people out. All right. Fantastic. Mark, thank you for your time. Thank you. All right. Bye now. Bye-bye. Okay, everyone. I hope you enjoyed today's show and got something out of it that you can use. If you did and you want to learn more, just go to onairwithella.com where I put up links to all of the good stuff that we talked about today and more information about our guests and all the good stuff that you did not need to write down today because I got you covered. Don't forget to join our Facebook page and thanks for those phenomenal reviews in iTunes. Every great review helps and we read every one. Thanks for listening and thanks for inspiring me. You are quite simply awesome.